Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. The hit of the word Christchurch Writers' Festival in 2016, Canadian performer, writer and filmmaker Ivan Coyote is one of the funniest and provocative storytellers around, grappling with questions of identity, gender, family and social justice. The author of numerous books, the Ottawa Express said of him that Coyote is to Canadian literature what Katie Lang is to country music, a beautifully odd fixture. Coyote is in conversation and telling stories with Kirby Jane Hallam in a session supported by the International Festival of Authors and the Canada Council for the Arts. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, my name is Kirby Hallam, but you won't be hearing from me too much tonight because I'm going to let Ivan um, talk you through parts of, of their book and, and perform some excerpts from it. Um, just a reminder to turn your cell phones off or put them on silent, please. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the support of the International Festival of Authors as well as the Canada Council of Arts for their um, support of Ivan's visit to New Zealand. So just a bit of um, a sense of structure of how we're going to move through today. Um, Ivan and I are going to discuss Tomboy Survival Guide, and it's going to be punctuated with um, Ivan reading some excerpts from the book. There'll be time at the end for Q&A, um, and make sure you, I'll, I'll invite you to speak um, into the microphones near the end of the, um, <laughs> near the end of the event, so stand by. So here we go. Um, Ivan, you've been a very busy and generous featured author and um, participant at Writers' Festival this year. What's it been like for you and amongst the company of authors that you're in, whose books are on your nightstand or on your, on your Kindle at the moment? Uh, Gina's. <laughs> Hi, Gina. <laughs> I got uh, uh, Susan Faludi's book. Mm -hmm. uh, I already had Roxane Gay's books at home. Um, I bought a little uh, Ian Rankin uh, to get signed by my sister. Um, <laughs> Uh, by Ian, for my sister, <laughs> pardon me. Yep. Uh, um, uh, Poe, uh, Tutu Van Firth's book. Yeah, it's been, I, I blew most of my honorarium, I think, so <laughs> that's working out well for everyone. <laughs> so reinvesting back into the festival. <laughs> um, and you've had a lot of experience delivering anti-bullying content um, uh, to schools in the US and Canada, and as part of the festival's school program, I wondered what New Zealand audiences had been like in the way they'd um, uh, enveloped you and, and responded to you to, over the week. Well, I was a bit um, nervous, actually, when because I, I went straight from the airport to the venue. I, <clears throat> I didn't even have a chance to check into the hotel, and I, <laughs> they took me to the backstage, and I said, oh, you know, so I've got a school show, great, in 45 minutes. Uh, what have I got, 200, 300 kids? <laughs> they said, yeah, uh, 2,000. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been doing school shows for 17 years or something like that. And in Canada, which is supposedly like a fairly civilized country, or so we like to think, <laughs> um, doing a school show for 2,000 kids at 1.30 in the afternoon after they had been sitting listening to writers all day would be kind of like, uh, well, I'd call it storytelling on the edge, <laughs> actually, is what I'd call it. And uh, so I thought, oh, my heart started pounding, and I thought, this is going to be a nightmare. And uh, the kids were so good. <laughs> they were so well prepared. So I'm not, are you beating them into submission? No, What's no, happening? no, 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 well, no. I just wondered how... They were how, very, yeah, how yeah, they, yeah, they were smart, and <laughs> um, yeah. One kid uh, got up to ask a question, 
well, I thought he was going to ask a question, and he got up and he said, oh, I don't have a question, uh, uh, I have a joke. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Here we go. <laughs> and I said, uh, what's the difference between a park bench and a writer? Oh. I said, I don't know, what's the difference between a park bench and a writer? <laughs> he said, uh, park bench can support a family. <laughs> So he was pretty far away, so I couldn't really see his beady little eyes. So I said, I guess you don't want to hear about the fat envelope of cash they just handed me backstage, hey? Staying up at the Grand Hotel, and the kids all went, like that. Mind you, the other day, uh, um, I was walking with some writers, and they, uh, they wanted to go uh, have a drink, but I, I was too tired, so... It was right after the um, True Stories Told yep. Live. Did, were you, did you see that yep. event? Okay, do you remember what I was wearing? No. A white shirt and a dark vest <laughs> yep. and a okay. dark tie. Yep. So I was heading into the hotel and this rich lady pulled up in a limo and oh. got out and just <laughs> rolled her suitcase in my direction. <laughs> she said, I'm going to check in. I said, fantastic, you should find a bellhop. <laughs> So I decided to switch it up. I'm wearing a Canadian tuxedo today. That's what we call a Canadian tuxedo. I confess I had heard that story. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah? It's become one of the legends of the festival this year. <laughs> <laughs> so if we move into the, the book that we're discussing at hand, Tomboy Survival Guide, who's the reader or the intended audience for the book? Well, hopefully everyone, yeah. Kirby. Um... I don't know. I like. I. I don't really think too much about who the reader's going to be. Yep. I, it gets in the way of my my pro, my process. <laughs> uh, yeah. I. I. I just sort of. I make lists. Yep. I make these lists of every like little vignettes or uh, stories that I think are going to work, and um, um, and I think of it like a like you're building a, a rock wall. That's what I tell my writing students. You know, you don't go and get one rock mm -hmm. and bring it all the way back to your house and put it where you need your fence and go back <laughs> and get another rock. And, you know, you, you get a collection of rocks. So, yep. so I, the, my list is my sort of directions to my, to my rock pile. And, mm -hmm. and then I just I was pretty methodical about it, actually, this last one. I, uh, I, do you remember when you were in school and they used to give you a gold star? <laughs> When you yes. did something or you passed a test or whatever. Yes. So um, a thousand word day was a gold star day. Yeah. And I just promised myself that I would make 70,000 wow. uh, or 70, I guess, stars um, uh, in the summer, bef like last summer before last, whatever summer it was. It's all a blur <laughs> now. But uh, so that's what I did. I just kind of methodically, and I don't really, I just write what's, I just write what's, what's banging at the inside of my eyelids, you know? Yeah. Um, and what, what feels like needs to get written. And then I look at the, I sit back and I look at the whole rock wall and I think, oh, it's gonna fall down over here if I don't put a little stone there yeah. and you need a little mortar here yeah. and you know, a little bit of a tiny rock over there. Yeah. And I, I don't really think about who my audience is gonna be. I think I'd, I think I'd write my, I think I'd, I'd worry myself into, uh, I'm a little high strung, can you tell? Can you tell? <laughs> no. She was just chilled out backstage drinking a Red Bull and I was just drinking water, just pacing back and forth, pacing back and forth. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I, I, I don't think I don't think in those terms. I just I just I mean I know I know that I'm I'm partially I, I want youth to pick up the yeah. book. I want us, them to see some reflection. I want it to resonate with them. But I I want it to like. A good story can cross over any of those imagined boundaries anyway, and so I don't really. Th I mean, look at the audience here today. I, you know, yeah. I wouldn't be doing a service to some people if I if I only wrote for yeah. for people who are like me. Can you read us a little bit of it now? Give us yeah, I was. Gonna, I thought I would read this part it. because it mentions both um, the title and uh, mm -hmm. New Zealand. Oh, good. <laughs> so. Uh, my uncle Rob tells this story about me, about the very first time that he ever met me. He was young in his 20s and he had been living and surfing and romancing New Zealand and Australia for some time and he had just returned home to the Yukon. That's up in Northern Canada where I grew up. He walked up the unpaved street on the just punched into the pine trees cul-de-sac my father had built our first house on. He knocked on our front door and I answered. I was almost four years old, story goes. And he stuck out his hand and he said, hello, you must be my niece. I'm your uncle Rob. Uh, so as he tells the story, I nodded very business-like and uh, I shook his hand with my right hand. I was hiding my left hand behind my back as he tells it, do you want to see a dead gopher? <laughs> I asked him. Now, so just so you all know, I've, I've looked it up just to make sure that it's going to culturally <laughs> translate. So, gopher, it's a burrowing rodent of the family genus Geomyidae, endemic to Central and North America. They are commonly known for their extensive tunneling activities. This species is classed as prohibited new organisms under New Zealand's Hazardous Substances and New Organisms Act of 1996, preventing them from being imported into the country. So you may never see a gopher, but anyway, I whipped out from behind my back. See, this is my Uncle Rob. Yeah. The reason he's always been my favorite uncle, he's game for anything. So I said, <laughs> do you want to see a dead gopher? Always very game. He replied, why, yes. You know, I was just thinking the other day how much I would love to see a dead gopher. So I whipped my left hand out from behind my back. I triumphantly <laughs> held up a road-killed and flattened and sun-dried <laughs> dead gopher that I had somehow magically spirited into my extremely OCD mother's home. <laughs> and he said that I was extremely proud of myself. <laughs> I was one of the lucky ones, you see. I was one of the lucky tomboys who, for the most part, was loved and allowed to pretty much be myself. At, at home, at least, if not at school or on the streets. Some of us are not so lucky. Some of us have that difference squeezed or pounded or prayed out of us, but still, here we are, scraped and sometimes more than a little scarred, but still we have survived. And when I look back, I know what helped me through magic. I also had to believe in magic. 
I had to believe in the northern lights. I had to believe in the smell of dry Yukon dirt just before the first raindrops fell. I had to believe that I could jump into the deep end and ski down that hill and that one day I could make even my father proud of having a daughter like me. I had to believe that everything would get easier. I had to believe in magic and I had to have skills. I had to have all the skills. That's what I thought. Knowing, asking, learning, practicing and dreaming about how to do stuff. Even if girls weren't supposed to be able to do that stuff, even though I sometimes had to fight to pick up that hammer or hatchet or helmet or handsaw, even if it was unbecoming and no boy or man would ever want me, even when I did manage to be good at something, I was reminded that, yeah, you know, I was pretty good at that for a girl, even if it was all so unladylike. <laughs> So you're going to need to build up your skills. You need to learn how to build a cruelty-free, non-leg-hold unicorn trap. Mm. You need to learn to stand in the middle of a cold stream and spin cast for miracles. You will have to sew your own superhero cape and cross-stitch it in code with stories of your own resistance. Stay up late writing secret love notes to yourself in lemon juice on good paper and then hold <laughs> them up to a light bulb and heat them up so you can read them back to yourself on the hard days because there are going to be hard days. Public bathrooms, they can be hard if you don't fit, but you are not alone in this because you plus me makes we, right? And we, we are gonna win this whole stupid public bathroom battle and everything that is right and just and true in the world is on our side. And one day you will be bigger and even braver than you are now and you're gonna tell one of our little people that back in the olden times, Everybody had to fit neatly into a gender box just to safely use a public washroom and they will not even believe you because bullshit bathroom bills will be nothing more than a monster buried in the past, dead like the dinosaurs, gone like dragons and kraken and the federal conservative party. <laughs> Ivan, I think that excerpt that you just read is probably why the Publishers Weekly reviewed the novel and described it as a wryly confessional memoir by turns raw, bittersweet and funny. And I just want to take us to earlier in the novel where I've encountered you setting up these tensions and collapsing and deflating readers' apprehensions. Um, it, for example, the, the description of a sexual assault and, and followed by a, a bullying incident of your um, classmates urinating into, the, into a toolbox. And as a female reader, I was really conscious of my own sense of fear and dread reading those passages of the novel. But those sort of, that sort of focus and those sensations were recapitulated by this really charming story that occurs right after um, that. And this, this story of your classmate, Barry, asking you for relationship advice. And I wondered if you could Barry. tell us a little more about that. Oh, yeah, Barry. Oh, I wish I would have brushed up on that part. Um, <laughs> yeah, Barry was this guy. So I went to electrical school. My mom wanted me to be a lawyer. Mm. I wanted to be a musician. So I, I went to electrical school. <laughs> And, uh, naturally. <laughs> naturally. And it uh, turned out to be a, a really good uh, plan, actually. Hmm. And so I was um, one of uh, two female assigned people at the time in 1992, mm -hmm. along with 650 men. 
in the electrical trades department. And uh, the uh, one of the other, so basically Nikki and I, my friend from school, had the women's bathroom, like was our office. <laughs> we used to smoke in there, and that's when I smoked. And we used to leave our books in there. And once in 10 and a half months of going to school nine to five, uh, the janitor came in and like, well, I don't know who was more scared and shocked him or, or us. And, and uh, there was this giant, really quiet guy named Barry who uh, uh, asked me to stay after school, mm. if I'm remembering it yep. correctly. I, I know I wrote it. You think I'd remember <laughs> it all. Remember. <laughs> um, anyway, he, he was having like, troubles with his wife. They were, uh, they were lacking in intimacy. And, um, and she had gone back to school to get her master's. They had a kid already, I think. And, um, you know, uh, so he basically sort of you know, uh, asked me like for, for uh, like w advice on women. <laughs> and uh, so I just gave him like what I seemed like no, no brainer advice, which is <laughs> clean the house, <laughs> um, take the toilet paper, put it on the roll, <laughs> like just put it actually on the, are you listening? <laughs> Change the sheets, mm -hmm. put the, do the dishes and put them away. Yes. Roast a chicken. Yep. Wear clean underwear and clean socks and be wearing an apron when she comes through the door. <laughs> and, um, and like, you know, just, she's tired, right? And just like, so spoil her a little bit. And all of this seemed to be like quite, you know, breaking news to him, so. <laughs> um, So when I gave him this, uh, this I think I gave him this advice on a Friday after, before like a long weekend. weekend. Yep. And he just came back on on Tuesday morning, like just and he'd get <laughs> like that. <laughs> and then I knew that I'd really done something right when um, <laughs> uh, at our end of school party when his wife was like, Ivan, hi, <laughs> can I give you a hug? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how important then is humour when you're dealing with a journey, and I'm taking from the back cover here, a journey through treacherous gender landscapes? Well, for me, it's vital, you know, and um, I just think humour for me is, well, it's, it's, a, it's like a survival tactic, for one thing. It's also the best way to get people on your side, mm -hmm. you know? I'm, I often am faced with these uh, like larger and larger crowds of people who maybe have no, maybe I'm the first trans person that they've ever seen talk, besides Caitlyn Jenner, but. <laughs> um, anyway, I won't go into that. <laughs> Moving on. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I really, I like, I call it the coyote one too. It's like my signature move. It's like, uh, <laughs> make them laugh. Oh, you think that's funny? <laughs> and you give them, you give them the goods, you yeah. know? And um, they're just so much more receptive. It's just such a, it's just such a more, um, it's just such a more sort of way of, uh, of, uh, of getting inside someone's heart. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't legislate compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't, you can't um, force someone into kindness or, uh, oh, finally the clock started ticking. Oh, good. Fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, good. Yeah, so um, I just think the storytelling is the best tool that we have to sort of step across uh, all these lines in the sand that we 
we draw in between ourselves and 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 get people to listen. And a humor is a, a, a really really uh, finely honed tool for that. You yep. know. Yep. Yeah, you got to watch not to cross the line sometimes. Yep. And and sometimes I'm very aware that people like sometimes people laugh at the wrong place. And um, and uh, I, nervously, I, <laughs> nervously, yeah. <laughs> or they just laugh because you know. But sometimes I've learned, uh, I guess, doing this for as long as I have now, that sometimes people laugh when they're uncomfortable too, um, yeah. and and that's that's okay. Like, I don't think changing the world is meant to be comfortable. No. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the illustrations? in the book. I wanted to gauge how you see them working or the purpose. Um, and I'm particularly interested in this interaction between text and image. Um, there's a passage describing the death of your grandma and associated burial rituals. And it's accompanied by this picture with the caption, a generator used on a bicycle. And I found that quite sort of discordant moving between um, this um, image and text. And I wondered, did you have creative control when the images were being gathered together for publication? Well, are you saying we made a mistake there? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. No, <laughs> this kind of sounds no, like what I'm you're just... saying. Um, uh, no. The images came out um, because uh, as a kid, I was really interested in like so-called uh, male mm. things. And um, uh, I just was, I wanted, I just took things apart and mm-hmm. I, uh, I went to the shop with my dad every day. I learned how to drive when I was 11. I learned how to drive a truck and a trailer when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I went to electrical school. I learned how to weld. I yeah. drove a forklift. And, um, um, but all of that learning was often fraught. My dad had a bad temper. He was a drinker. I love him dearly, but he was sometimes difficult to learn from, mm-hmm. and uh, and I sort of had to do that sometimes afraid if I made a mistake. So I loved manuals. Hmm. Okay. I loved them, yep. and uh, I read them fanatically as a kid, yeah. and uh, I, st- I still do. I actually really like them. I love those old drawings. Mm. So I... Um, and I had a, quite a selection, uh, and then my house burnt down in 2005. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, 2006 on April 1st, (laughs) April Fool's Day. (laughs) Anyway, um, never a dull moment. So I lost them all, but I've started my collection again. And so I I wanted to, the the book's based on kind of an old school manual. Like Mm. we put, we borrowed the font from uh, this book called um, Home Appliance Repair. And and so we, um, and some of them I, some of them I placed uh, intentionally yep. to 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 sort of metaphorically draw upon text that was on that page. Yep. Some of them, some of that layout and design, uh, um, they had to be over 50 years old. So the, the, they were they uh, were it was yeah, yeah copyright laws. Yeah. Not that I didn't want to pay the original artist. <laughs> it was um, more that like the yeah. the. the the aesthetic I was yeah. looking for, yeah. most of the publishers were gone. Yeah. Most of the artists were dead, yeah. and uh, so, so they they do, they didn't all necessarily um, line up. Yeah. We had to, you know, we had there was room because the way the layout and design happened, yeah. you know, this this piece f- finished here. Yeah. Some mm-hmm. of them I some of them um, I, I I flagged and moved to different places like. This is one of my favorite ones, how to make a wire hanger, a common wire hanger into a, uh, a loop on your belt for a hammer. And, <laughs> and then I didn't want them to be all too gendered, so uh, I, I, I started also looking at a bunch of craft, and so that's why there's um, 
some basket weaving, yeah. and then and all the hands they're, are they're f- are white. Yeah. Um, they well, they're just black line on white page, which yeah. infers that they're white. So I went back to the designer and I, I asked him to color in some of the hands yeah. so that we weren't inferring that everyone who did anything was white yeah. all the time, and. Um, he thought that that was I was being silly, but I was like, no, no. I'm not. I'm not backing down on this. No. I need you to. Uh, I need you to do no. that. And so he said, okay, pick some of the hands. So this is my homage to Black Lives Matter. It's um, it's it's uh, actually casting on of uh, knitting, but it looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> and we colored that hand in. So um, yeah. So that's so maybe you know axes proper holding of an axe, just a lot of handy things that I would have really, I would have loved this book when I was a kid. Back to your original thing about who did I write it for, I would have just loved it. Um, You know, yeah. Yeah. Proper pocket knife handling, (laughs) just all the important things, you know. (laughs) Are you able to read us another excerpt while you've got it in your... Yeah, for time. Okay, all right, good. So I'm going to read from I Wish My Son. Mm-hmm. It's a story called I Wish My Son. And just to put it into context, because we don't have time for the whole thing, it's, um, it's, a, it's a letter, it's a response to a letter that I got from the mother of um, th- four kids. Um, and uh, uh, she had three sons and, and, and a daughter, and her daughter uh, was transitioning. Um, and to her son, so she was going to have four sons, and she, she wrote me a letter. She was struggling with this, so I'm just going to um, cut into. She basically says at one point in the letter um, that her uh, her son wasn't happy. His pot use has escalated. He's disrespectful. He's hard and cold and negative. And you know, she, she said, I'm j- I guess I'm just wondering, you have all your stuff together. <laughs> you have supportive parents. Did you ever hate your family for no reason at all? <laughs> I want so desperately to see the confidence in my son that you have. I, I want him to be happy and kind and respectful. I don't recognize him. I was told that gender dysphoria is when your body doesn't match your brain. Well, doesn't that mean my kind, loving, thoughtful child should still be in there? I feel like he died. Any insight is appreciated, and thank you for what you do. <laughs> so I wrote her quite, and this is actually the letter that I, I, I did indeed write her back, and then I contacted her to ask her if I could use both my, her letter and my response. So this, I'm just excerpting from my response. If I were to meet your son, and he were to ask for my advice, which sounds like is unlikely, I, I would tell him this. If you are going to be a man, then please be a good man. Be a kind man, be a feminist man. Do not try to fit into mainstream male culture by rejecting and reviling the feminine, not in you and not in the world. I would tell him to cry in public as much as he wants, just to make more room for everyone to cry in public. I would tell him I am crying as I write this right now. I would tell him to write poems instead of punching walls, and I would tell him to try to be kinder to his mother, that she is doing the best she can to understand. But I've got to tell you, I never really related to this very common theory that being trans meant my body didn't match my brain. 
I feel like this is a really handy narrative that puts all of the pressure and responsibility for change onto trans people and off of the rest of society. If we could just grow a beard or not have a penis or an Adam's apple, you know, if we were shorter or taller or skinnier or hairier or less hairy, if our breasts were bigger or removed, if we could take and pay for and heal from all the steps that we would need to go through so that none of you could tell anymore that we were trans, then we could be happy. I, I do not accept this because my day-to-day -day struggles are not so much between me and my body. I, I am, I'm not trapped in the wrong body. I'm trapped in a world that makes very little space for bodies like mine. I live in a world where my trans sisters are routinely murdered without consequence or justice. I live in a world where trans youth get kicked out onto the street on the regular by their parents who actually believe their own God is standing behind them as they close their front doors on their own children. Going to the beach is an act of bravery for me. None of this is a battle between me and my own flesh. For me to be free, it's the world that needs to change, not trans people. Ivan, I'm not going to ask you about bathrooms because there's plenty of material on, on the you. internet. Appreciate um, that. <laughs> 2016 uh, was the year of the bathroom for me. I did a TED talk that went viral. It became uh, on gender-neutral bathrooms. And so, um, so uh, that is, became the first thing that anyone ever asks me. And every time it happens, I can hear my grandmother up in heaven like, just going like, oh, God. <laughs> National radio, you're talking about bathrooms. <laughs> And then all the, uh, you know, it's become such a flashpoint discussion, yeah. and especially in the United States right now. I yeah. mean, as soon as Trump got in, although I really mm -hmm. don't want to talk about him, but the first thing he did was go after the Muslims. And then uh, the second thing he did was the executive order rescinding any protections for trans youth in public high schools. Like that was the, and then it was women, and then it was the environment, just so we know whose priorities, yeah. you know. Um, <sighs> Yeah, so, mm. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so not, I, there I went and talked about bathrooms, but anyway, yeah. So not on bathrooms, but okay. um, the chapter called Be Careful in there, where you do talk about bathrooms as contested spaces, as battlegrounds, I want to extrapolate that a little bit to think about language in the same vein, and I wonder if there's a correlation in your mind between gender-neutral bathrooms and gender-neutral pronouns and how they're sort of moving between physical and abstract. Sorry, what are you saying? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, does language hold that do danger? Do you have a PhD? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to give it back. Um, <laughs> no, I'm trying to No, really, ask me a real question. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> Okay, my favourite line in the book then is... Okay, um, I'm, I'm kind of teasing you. That's all right. Only because I know that academics are all secret masochists. <laughs> and you kind of just loved that, didn't yeah, you? A little I bit. Did. I know, I know. <laughs> I've dated a number of you. I thought... 
thought we weren't all supposed to fit into boxes. You just put me into a box. Um, making it about me again. My favourite line is leave fist, mask, fist marks and boot prints and lipstick stains all over their glass ceilings. Leave all the closet doors open everywhere. And I don't want to undermine your prose here, but I would like to have that on a coaster in my office. Okay, we could probably hook that up for but, you. Um, if you were to limit right it to just... Right after we finish making my new merchandise, which is going to be dickless wonder. <laughs> it's, it's what I get called... I got, some, I got a hate message the other day. Somebody oh. called me a dickless wonder, and I was like, I like it. <laughs> it would look pretty good as a crest, like a superhero crest, too, yeah. I was thinking. So we need DW. to work on some merchandise. For you. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. Um, <laughs> if you could limit it to just one thing, what would be the take-home message of, of the book? Oh, why would we limit it to one thing? Oh, take a few then. (laughs) (sighs) I don't know. I don't don't know. I'd have to... uh, Can can I think about that? Can we come back to that? We'll circle back. One thing that I would want them to take home. Themselves. I I like to think about stories as... um, I like to think about the, what happens with a storyteller and the reader or the audience. Uh, this phenomenon, I, I, I've, I don't know where I got this, ter- but it, I call it rattling uh, their ghosts. Hmm. So um, uh, I think a really good story, no matter how different the teller is from the listener, it, it has the, there's some kind of an ability to reach inside that person and have it resonate somehow with their own story. Like, we all have stories of feeling like misfits, you know? And um, uh, we all have family stories. We all have stories about, you know, railing against um, something that our parents uh, enforced upon us. Like, none of these things are are, are, uh, exclusive to my experience, right? And especially with... Uh, um, with women, with cisgender, like assigned women, mm. I mean, and I've sa- I say this in the book too. Like, I don't, I don't think that trans people wrote the only book mm. on hating our bodies. <laughs> like, no. and even if, even if we did win at that contest, I wouldn't want the fucking mm. prize anyway. <laughs> no. You know, I don't want to win the contest at who feels most uncomfortable in your body. And I think we're, you know, so, so for me, I, I think I, I, want, I want the book, if I had to, if people were to take one thing away, it's like to, to, to rattle the ghosts inside them and, mm-hmm. and shake their own stories loose and, mm-hmm. and find, uh, find a path through my story into their own story and yeah. their own sort of redemption, their own learning to feel comfortable. I remember being at a, a writer's, conference or a festival somewhere sitting next to a graphic novelist a young uh, graphic novelist and and this woman coming over and said you know one of the things I love the most about your books is that there's the language is simple Um, they're readable and it makes me feel like I could write my own story like anyone could write their own story and I said thank you so much and she walked away and the the novelist said how offensive (laughs) 
Fuck no, that's to me that's the greatest uh, compliment that I could get. That I I make somebody feel empowered to write their own story down, especially an old woman. Like yeah. we know who writes the history books, like and those things are changing. And so that's I guess I guess if I had to answer yeah. the question of one thing, one thing, I want it I want to I want it to rattle their own ghosts yeah. enough for people to believe in the validity and the importance of their own story. I had a 96-year-old student one time who's, who came into my class and said, oh, oh, I had her, I since have had her, her daughter, her granddaughter, and her great-granddaughter <laughs> too, as well, come through my creative writing classes at one point or another. And she said, oh, you know, my family made me take this, it was a week-long writing class in Victoria, um, in Canada, and... Uh, <laughs> My family all want me to write down my life story, but I've, you know, I've got such a boring old story. I don't know why anyone would want to read that. I mean, all I did was raise up 11 kids without electricity and running water in northern Saskatchewan in the 20s and 30s, you know. (laughs) Does that answer your question? Or at least avoid it enough that we can move on? Um, halfway through the book, it sort of shifts from an I to a you subjective position, and that moving between memoir <laughs> and let me finish and the self-help <laughs> manual that's promised by the title. I just I guess I'm returning to your process okay. again, and I wonder how how you actually handle all those moving parts, the the lyricisms and the songs and the stories and and coming back to that idea of the the building of the bricks and the holistically. Is it quite a confronting process to write in such a, you know, you know, covering so many types of, of writing. Kirby, I really like you, but you think I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> okay? Fair enough. So. <laughs> All right, I'll take that back. Um, <laughs> let's ground that a little. How long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> I... Uh, I um, <laughs> I really don't, I honestly, I'm not, I, I don't step out of the process enough to be that uh, self-conscious about it. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm an electrician. <laughs> I'm a saxophone player. And all I ever wanted to do when I was a kid was play the saxophone and write stories. Mm. And I mean, I'm so grateful that I get to do that. Yeah. But, but I find like if I, if I get too in my head about it, I'm, I, I don't write from here. I, I write from here and I write from here and sometimes, anyway. <laughs> Um, you know, that's, that's my, that's my process. So I, I, I honestly feel like it would be a much different book if I, uh, if I overthought things too much, it would be because I am talking about, there's a real social justice element in there and there is queer liberation and trans liberation. And I do really want to change the world. And, and so if I, if, I, if I get too caught up in my head about it, it would come out as didactic, yeah. you know? Yeah. It would come out as too lecture-y. Is yep. that a word? Yep. Is lecture. it? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm a 19th century scholar, so most of the writers no. that I deal with... <laughs> um, 
um, and read in this much detail died 150 years ago. So you're just a treat for me to be able to ask are you. Are you just saying that? You're just all saying the burning that. questions I've wanted to ask an author in real life. So I'm going to throw that out. <laughs> um, in the book, you reference some of your other works, like Gender Failure, mm -hmm. and mostly around people's responses to reading it. Can you tell me if you think the two work as companion pieces, or, or how do you see, actually, all of your kind of creative activities, outputs, performances, all working together as a whole? Well, for a while, I wanted them to aesthetically, sort yeah. of, um, but then I would be trapped in, like, 1998 <laughs> aesthetic, when yeah. my first book came out. So, again, I don't, like, I... Um, I just write what's what's kicking around in my head. I just write what's like, uh, what's got what's what's just got my heart in its fist a little bit. And um, uh, right now, I'm really liking these little. I call them literary Doritos. Yep. I'm really liking that format. For one thing, like you know, it used to be back in the day. Um, when you did a writer's festival, they, they were like, oh, and then you'll read for an hour and 11 <laughs> minutes, and then there'll be a short question. But now it's like, you've got four minutes. Oh, you've got five minutes. Oh, right. You've got seven minutes. And, and be I guess because I'm so interested in the, the narrative arc of things, like, um, I, I find it really hard to just pull out a chunk of a story. I, 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 I craft it. I want the beginning is the beginning, and the middle is the middle, and the end belongs with the rest of it. And so, I find it really hard to, to. Um, so I like these little literary Doritos. That's what we're going to close with today. Yeah, yeah. I've selected some of those. So my next book is, um, is, uh, is I'm just going to. It's all Doritos. I'm going to. Okay. I'm aiming for like 200 of them. And then I'm soliciting, I hope, if she likes me enough, I'm soliciting my friend who's a poet's, uh, I believe, genius daughter. Mm -hmm. He posts her artwork all the time on Facebook, and I just think she's oh, like yeah. a nine-year-old uh, uh, genius. <laughs> so her name's Senna Compton, and... Um, so I'm going to ask her, I've got a very, I'm pretty stressed out about this meeting. I've got to figure out like ice cream, hot chocolate. Like how do I cajole this <laughs> kid? I'm going to pay her too in real cash money. And um, so that's the one I'm working on. And then I'm, and then I'm working on another uh, uh, a, a kind of a big, long, heavy duty novel um, uh, centered around a, a young a girl that I grew up with. Um, we, were, we were born two days apart. Um, she died of... Um, uh, HIV and complications due to AIDS shortly before mm. we turned 30 years old. I believe in my story and in mm. the world because she was so beautiful that she was um, uh, a target. She, men and boys just started to circle her like mm. sharks like when we were 10 and 11 years old. Mm. And um, uh, yeah, so I've, uh, I'm kind of creating a fictional account of, of that story a little bit, uh, and, and I'm working on that, and it's pretty heavy. Yeah. And, I, and I don't know if it's going to connect to the other books yeah. or, or not. I, I, just, I really just try to immerse myself in whatever project yeah. I'm working on, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't ask those questions um, too, too much. Yeah. I, I, would, I think they would just get in the way of me getting really to, to the meat and the bones and the heart of yeah. what I'm trying to get at with my work. Does that yeah, make it sense? Does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um.
Can we do these now? Yeah, we're going to yeah. end with... Um, we're going to end with just a couple of yeah. my favorite thing right now, which are uh, literary Doritos. Just for the record, glaring at me in disgust in the women's change room will not magically make me more feminine. <laughs> Believe me, the statistics are in on this one. If dirty looks could make me conform, it would have happened decades ago. Does it make you feel any better? Because it sure doesn't add any charm to my gym experience, just so you know. P.S. I probably should have told you that you had a gigantic period stain on the ass of your yoga pants, but <laughs> you just didn't seem all that approachable. <laughs> I just gave the butch nod. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> to someone I swore was a 20-something baby butch or maybe genderqueer person working at the grocery store up the street from me. <laughs> Turned out to be a handsome young teenage boy. <laughs> he probably wonders why all the old dykes seem to like him so much. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's for all my uh, family in the audience. I'll just close with this one. Flagging has never gone out, should never, ever be allowed to go out. May all the secret languages of the queers and the bent live on in our pockets forever. Thank you so much, Auckland. Thanks, Kirby. Can I give you a hug? Yeah. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.